electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. First developers, 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 developers. Yes. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and Julia Boyston. John Ford's off today. Ahead this hour, Apple blinks, and it is a win for developers. Maybe some changes coming to Apple's revenue model. We will see. Then China Tech stumbling again. More pain for those names thanks to some additional rules that we are getting out of Beijing. Later, Peloton powers down. Investors fear the run-up in that stock may be over. In the meantime, as David and Mike just said, record highs for the Nasdaq and the S&P after Powell's speech at Jackson Hole as uh, the taper tantrum, at least, certainly has not arrived yet. Julia. And let's start with Apple's big update. The company announced will allow app developers to contact customers for payment outside of the iOS app. Apple developers can now use information obtained from apps, such as email address, to directly communicate with customers and avoid Apple's notorious 15 to 30 percent fees. Now, this change comes as part of a proposed settlement to a class action lawsuit that sued alleging that Apple monopolizes its app store and overcharges for commission. And we should point out that this is separate from Apple's ongoing lawsuit with Epic Games. So, Deirdre, what I'm really curious about here is whether this turns out to be really meaningful for Apple's business or whether this is perhaps more of a strategic move because Apple is facing so much regulatory oversight and scrutiny of maybe whether it's too big and powerful. Yeah, I think this is strategic, Julian Carl. I mean, Apple knows that what is key in the payments ecosystem is reducing friction. And this really does none of that. If anything, it kind of adds another layer by asking developers to go and email their users, input their payment information again. So one very, very small step, Carl. But who knows? I mean, this could be just the first step. We know that there is just so much scrutiny around the payment systems within the app store. Perhaps this leads to more. Yeah, uh, Morgan Stanley's point is that there's there's no change uh, to the fee or in-app payment methods, which, in Morgan Stanley's view, uh, guys, renders this pretty toothless, in their words. Uh, it does mean, of course, they can communicate with users via email, but they make the point, Julia, that that involves a lot of friction and is probably unlikely to change user behavior in a big way. Yeah, certainly, Carl, there's a big difference between enabling app developers to email their users rather than just communicate with them directly within the app and get them to go from there to paying them directly and avoiding those fees. Now, our next guest slamming Apple's new changes in the settlement, saying, quote, this offered us nothing to address the structural foundational problems facing all developers, large and small, undermining innovation and competition in the app ecosystem. 
Joining us now, Executive Director of the Coalition for App Fairness, Megan Demuzio. Megan, thanks for joining us. I want to play devil's advocate here for a minute. It does seem like this kind of opens up the walled garden in a way that we've never seen Apple do before, right? You know, thanks so much for having me, Julia. I, I have to disagree. I, this is this is really a sham settlement offer. It does nothing, as you mentioned, to um, really address the root causes of the problems that developers, large and small, continue to face as part of the Apple's App Store. Um, but what do you think is being overlooked here? What is the piece that you think would really make a difference? Is it about allowing developers to communicate m more directly with their users within their apps and say, hey, click here and pay, pay and avoid the Apple App Store fees? I mean, what is the issue? Is it about avoiding those App Store fees entirely? Because that seems unlikely. I think there are a few different root issues here. One, um, which you pointed out, this does nothing, um, you know, allowing developers to communicate with their customers about lower prices outside of their app is quite frankly not a concession and further highlights Apple's total control over the app marketplace. So that's that's one issue. The other issue is it does nothing to address the in-app um, the requirement to use Apple's in-app payment processing system. Um, and then third, as you did mention, it, it really does nothing to address the uh, exorbitant app, app tax that um, folks continue to pay when they're using apps that make their lives better on a daily basis. Megan, I'm with you here. It's your job. Uh, I don't really see this as much of a concession at all. It doesn't do anything to reduce that friction. However, could this be a first step as we're seeing so much scrutiny and there are more lawsuits? You have, you know, some very big companies like Epic coming out against Apple. Does this at least give them some ammunition in their fight? You know, I, I think that this is really, it's hard to see the substance behind this, Deirdre. I mean, I think it's, as I, I keep referring to it, it truly is a sham. It's, you know, Apple um, using this as a PR stunt and not really, quite frankly, focused on the solutions. You know, I think we're seeing important movement worldwide. You know, uh, there is um, bipartisan bicameral legislation that's introduced, has been introduced in Congress by Senators Blumenthal, Blackburn, Klobuchar, and then in the House by Representatives Johnson, Buck and Cicilline. And I think those are important steps. We're also seeing movement worldwide. If you've been following in South Korea, um, they are poised to consider an important um, bill that would address in-app payment, the requirement, requirement of in-app payment processing systems on Monday, South Korea time. So I do think that this is you know, very much indicative of Apple feeling the pressure. But like everything else, it's it's truly um, a part of their gatekeeper role to um, really control the rules of the road going forward. Megan, I wonder what you make of this uh, fund for small developers uh, of $100 million, which doesn't sound like a lot of money for Apple. What do you think would have been serious money for Apple? I mean, that's a drop in the bucket when you're talking about a company like Apple. And quite frankly, the legal fees are coming out of that $100 million. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's really not a whole lot of money. Developers are poised to get, what, a $250 check. That does nothing to, you know, encourage innovation and business growth uh, generally. You know, what's interesting to me, Megan, is that we're awaiting the ruling on this Epic lawsuit. That Epic suit has been so closely watched. And I believe that the same judge 
who is going to be making that ruling is also going to be the one to oversee this class action settlement. And I'm wondering if you think that some of the things we're seeing here in this settlement are going to be part of the ruling in the Epic case and how you think that what we've learned about this settlement could impact what's to come um, in, in the deals that Apple makes with its developers. You know, I truly I can't comment on the case. The Coalition for App Fairness is not involved. Um, obviously, Epic is one of many valued members of the Coalition for App Fairness. But I think the most important part of um, the recent developments and any of the developments that came out of the Epic trial is we received confirmation time and time again um, that Apple is acting in their own interests. Um, and it really brought to light um, to the public dialogue some of the consistent problems we see going on with the Apple App Store. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I think this is just the latest step. I, I can't speculate in terms of, or do I have a crystal ball in terms of how the judge will rule in the Epic trial? But I do think it is, the Epic trial is just one of many, um, many developments that continue to um, really influence the digital marketplace on the whole. Well, certainly a topic we're going to be continuing to follow. Megan, we appreciate you joining us. We'll be watching for that ruling out of South Korea on Monday and then also, of course, for that epic ruling. Deirdre? Now, we've talked about the rush out of Chinese equities over the last few months due to the government crackdown there. The Hang Seng Tech Index down more than 20 percent since June. And just this morning, the Journal has a new piece saying that Chinese regulators are preparing to ban all U.S. IPOs for any data-heavy Chinese company. But in the midst of this sell-off, some investors, like Kathy Wood, are trying to buy the bottom, adding shares of Tencent, Pinduoduo, and JD.com over the last few days. And there's this, William Blair just announcing a China growth equity fund this week. You heard that right. Joining us now, the portfolio manager of that new fund, Vivian Lin uh, Thurston. Vivian, thanks for being with us today. Why now when there's so much uncertainty? I just brought you that headline from the journal suggesting that Beijing is far from done with its crackdown. Thank you for having me here today. Um, if you think about Chinese equity as an asset class, uh, it has evolved and developed tremendously, especially in the past decade. So Chinese equities, uh, not only one of the largest um, asset class in the world by market cap, together about 16 trillion, it also one of the most exciting and interesting investment opportunities from the bottom-up perspective. So we continue to see that the long-term investment case on China equities remain unchanged. And in addition, the accessibility to Chinese equities for the global investors continue to broaden and to open up. So you probably heard of that now, global investor can access domestic two stock changes, Shanghai and Shenzhen, through the Connect program. So we believe the further open up, opening up of domestic market will make China become even bigger representation of the global indices. So for example, within MSCI-EM, China accounts for about 35% of the weighting, and at one point was as high as 40%. So despite the certain developments in recent time, we believe this long-term investment case on China remains unchanged. And in so the same time... 
Sorry to interrupt you, Vivian. I'm just wondering, what is your strategy here? Is it a little bit different? Are you investing in some of the big tech names that we talk about all the time on CNBC, like Alibaba and Pinduoduo, JD.com? I'm looking at your top 10 holdings from, I think, another fund, and they're more connected to the government. They're names that we don't talk about as often. So is this a play on sort of government regulation, the companies that perhaps Beijing is taking stakes in and helping to become winners at the expense Mm -hmm. of others? Yeah. First of all, yes, we do invest into uh, across the board all Chinese equities, including the ones listing outside of China. And but the timing of this launching actually not really relate to what you just mentioned. As I mentioned earlier on that this is the long term evolution of this asset class and the natural evolution of our own investment capabilities perspective. We've been having the China investment since the late 1990s. And then in the same time, we launched the dedicated China domestic strategy back in 2013 and recently 2018. So uh, on the topical level, it sounds like the, the timing is interesting, but actually this has been a very natural evolution of what we have been thinking about this investment case and also the asset class. Vivian, you mentioned MSCI uh, EM, and um, there was a period not too long ago where pressure was on them from U.S. politicians to, to distance themselves from Chinese equities. Are you saying that that political pressure domestically is going to abate and, and not come back? It's very difficult to predict from the political perspective, but I would, I would say that MSCI looking at the market mechanism and also the evolution of the asset class from the fundamental perspective and also holistic perspective to look at the importance of the weighting of a certain country. So I believe from that perspective, as I mentioned earlier, Chinese equity as a whole remains attractive and unchanged. Uh, we will see that how that MSI inclusion will continue to evolve from this point onward. But I believe fundamentally speaking, it will be aligned with the same kind of thinking as I just mentioned about the overall Chinese investment case. Yeah, Vivian, it's so interesting to me because obviously there's there's so much uncertainty still, um, but also this sense of a government crackdown on innovative leaders such as Jack Ma. There is a, a fascinating profile of him and what's been going on with his relationship with the government in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend. And with all of that in mind, I'm wondering if you think that will cast a pall over the next generation of innovation. And you look out multiple years, if you think that entrepreneurs will just be less incentivized to want to invest in building within China um, with all of these different pressures. Yeah. Yeah. The, those developments definitely raise those kind of questions. But if we, if we look at the the evolution of Chinese policy or how the recent development comes through, we don't see this as a major deviation from what we have seen as China as a system. So China is different than the rest of the world. It's a combined system between a top-down management versus bottom-up market-driven economy. So we call that state capitalism. This system has not changed, but the policy focuses of uh, the the government will shift from time to time. So in recent times, we see more and more those kind of policy focuses on the technology-related industries. But on the other hand, we also see other technology industries, such as the hardware, uh, the high-end manufacturing side, actually get a lot of policy support from the government. So to some extent, this is a natural uh, kind of a development of the system has been always the case since we've been investing in China in, in mid-late 90s. But we do want to make sure that we'll continue to understand from our framework, our investment process perspective to how to factor in those risk developments better and to further understand those risks impact our China investment and investment case. 
Vivian, will we start to see or continue to see the Chinese government take stakes in some of China's biggest and most successful companies? There was a report that it took a 1% ownership stake in ByteDance. We know that Ant Group, part of its business, was brought under view of the PBOC. What does that kind of state ownership do to the long-term prospects of these Chinese companies? And, you know, the most successful ones like Alibaba have historically been able to operate independently. Yeah, the long-term prospect of those companies, in our view, that remain unchanged, as I said, because the bigger picture view is still China pro-growth, China pro is pro-innovation. But in terms of all those uh, recent developments, as you just mentioned, I think on the margin, um, I do feel the policy developments become more try to understand how those um, large corporations probably operate, especially relate to some sensitive uh, areas such as data security. So I don't see this as a change of direction in terms of all those industry or the government's view and how to support those industries over a longer period of time. But we do want to make sure that we continue to monitor the development and then and to understand that, directionally speaking, what does this entail in the future? But as of now, we don't see this um, premise of the growth and innovation change. Okay, we will see. Uh, we know that things are moving quickly over there. Vivian, thanks for being with us. Hope to have you back again soon. Thank you for having me. Still to come, forget its products. Peloton is trying to recall investors this morning. We'll tell you why that stock is down so much today. That's next. Big Hour Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. a gut check on shares of Peloton down big this morning. You're looking at about a two-month low as shares down almost 9%. Got uh, bigger than expected loss. They guide below. And now uh, the company's disclosing it has been subpoenaed uh, for documents related to injuries the customers received on some of its equipment. Let's bring in Webbush analyst James Hardiman, who downgraded the stock to neutral uh, back in July. James, good morning. Thanks for the time today. Morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Big debate this morning about whether or not cutting prices is smart in this environment. Where are you right now? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I've always been a big believer that, that this company is going to be valued more on, on top-line growth than on profitability, uh, certainly near-term profitability. I still believe that, uh, but the magnitude of the, the, the loss that they're guiding to for this coming year is, is pretty dramatic. 
I mean, they're, they're, they're coming in about $800 million short of where the street was in terms of, of the EBITDA loss that they're guiding to. That's, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, indeed. Yeah, we're going to be looking for more on, on, that, on, on that front. But on the pricing side, when you're dealing with such uh, freight and commodity cost pressure, um, is cutting prices smart? There are some on the street this morning who argue it is, uh, that they have relatively low churn, and that is going to stimulate some new wave of demand in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, look, they're certainly zigging when a lot of other companies are zagging. We're, we're hearing about most companies uh, raising prices as a result of supply chain and commodities, and these guys are, are lowering prices. Um, at the end of the day, I think the street's going to give them a pass uh, on the losses for this year. But I, I do think it is indicative of the fact that, that the pandemic is fundamentally over. I don't think they'd be cutting these prices if, if they were sort of in this, this deficit from a supply-demand perspective that they've been in for the last year and a half. At the end of the day, I think that, that as you think about people that are using this as a pandemic play, the honeymoon's over, right? It, it doesn't mean that this can't be a very effective marriage long-term, but there is that transition period. Uh, and I think this price cut is a big part of that. I'm, I'm curious to hear you say that you think the pandemic is over, especially considering that we are hearing more and more from some of these companies that are going to be doing hybrid work for a lot longer because of the Delta variant. So I'm wondering if you think that the Delta variant is, in fact, going to delay the advantages of the pandemic for Peloton, and also whether you think there are going to be some people who are just permanently converted away from gyms to, to these, uh, you know, high-priced high devices in their homes. I mean, I have a Peloton, and for me, I'm never going to back to a gym because it converted me to this new mode of working out. Sure. And I'm, and I'm the same way. Um, I, I am a big believer and continue to be a big believer that there is a long term secular trend away from uh, in gym fitness and, and towards at home fitness. And I, and I continue to think Peloton is, is the leader in that respect. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's going to be as easy as it's been over the last couple of years or a couple of years during the pandemic by any perspective. And thus far, I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence that the Delta variant and the spread of that variant has been a positive for Peloton. Uh, the fourth quarter, we saw a slowdown in, in terms of, of new subscribers. And what they're guiding to for this upcoming quarter uh, is also a significant step down. Uh, we'll see if Delta ultimately helps them. Uh, but I think fundamentally, uh, they're going to really have to work for their money, uh, much more so than they have over the last two years. James, it's Deirdre. And by the way, I'm not going back to the physical gym either. Um, but, uh, you know, Delta or not, we have seen office reopenings been pushed back. Perhaps these habits and trends are going to be around longer than what we originally anticipated. And on the call last night, the Peloton team was asked about their corporate wellness strategy. And they said that so far it's actually exceeded expectations. Still early days. The market is tens of billions of dollars. Do you think that this could be sort of an appreciated opportunity for the company? It could be. Um, and I, I think it's one of the many levers that the company has at its disposal. Um, the biggest, clearly, is, is new products, um, right? They're, they're coming out with a new treadmill. Um, there's a lot of uh, speculation that they're going to come out with a rower. The corporate wellness program seems like a, a, a potentially big deal. Um, but again, I, I, I think the, the real news here is that over the last year and a half, they haven't really had to pull any levers. Um, and now uh, for them to continue to, to fuel this growth story, 
um, they're going to have to hit on a number of these, right? They're, they're going to have to play their cards uh, exactly right for the current valuation to stick. James, uh, quite a story and obviously one of the big movers of the day. Uh, we appreciate the uh, time and uh, some, uh, some texture on your recent calls. Appreciate it very much. James Hardiman, Webbush. Meanwhile, guys, the hot new thing in IT security is a physical key. We reported on new initiatives announced as part of the White House Cybersecurity Summit, but it appears one of them will be a physical key from Amazon that lets customers securely log into their accounts. This is for AWS cloud computing, so corporate customers like Airbnb and Netflix who run their business on AWS cloud servers. Now, this is a broader trend towards physical hardware designed to prevent cyber attacks. These will be multi-factor authentic devices and it works as an added layer of security so you still need to have the password as well as this new usb device no confirmation as to who will actually be manufacturing these keys keep in mind apple facebook google and microsoft for the past few years have also allowed customers to buy usb devices and add them to accounts as an additional security measure amazon telling cnbc the customers can begin requesting keys in October. And Julia, it reminds me a little bit of uh, some news we got out of Square recently. They're going to be looking at making a Bitcoin hardware wallet. So <laughs> as we become more digital, we're also getting more hardware, I guess. Yeah, what's old is new again. I guess things can't exist only in the virtual world. Meanwhile, more on Apple's commission to concession in the App Store. That's next. Plus, New York City imposes new rules on the likes of Uber, Dash, and Grubhub. The future of food delivery is after the break. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Uber has been far from a boon for investors since its IPO two years ago, and now it has seen two strikes in one week. The New York City Council passing a package of bills last night targeting the food delivery industry, including Uber Eats. The bill making the pandemic era caps on delivery and marketing fees permanent and boosting enforcement of past legislation, including rules over sharing customer data with restaurants. Uh, the bill heads to Mayor de Blasio's desk just a week after a California judge deemed Proposition 22 unconstitutional. That initiative, which would have cemented rideshare drivers as independent contractors rather than uh, employees, is expected to be appealed. Joining us now, former Uber chief business officer and DPCM capital chairman and CEO, Emil Michael. Emil, good to see you. Uh, you have been critical, and we should also note you were part of Uber 1.0, the Travis Kalanick era, which had its own set of issues. But what do you think has happened over the last two years broadly that has put Uber in this position? I mean, the whole gig economy has to deal with these curbs, but Uber, at least in terms of its balance sheet and its profitability, just feels further behind than its rivals like Lyft and DoorDash. Yeah, and you see it. You see that reflected in the value of Uber, where today 
Lyft plus DoorDash is bigger than Uber from a market cap standpoint. And remember, Lyft, uh, Uber's three times as big as Lyft in the U.S., and Uber used to be bigger than DoorDash in the U.S. So something's wrong there. And I think what you're seeing is the unit economics that Lyft was able to get per ride last quarter and the unit economics that DoorDash was able to get per delivery last quarter were significantly better than Uber. So they were just more efficient, and the market's crediting them with that and sort of dinging Uber with that, that, uh, that inefficiency. Right. And sort of a notable difference between the two, Lyft and DoorDash, is that they're sort of growing organically. They're staying pretty focused. But CEO Darwakaz Roshahi's strategy has really been one of deal making, which investors haven't really appreciated so far. Do you think that that continues or he needs to step back and sort of look at that organic growth and not do any more deals, perhaps? Yeah, I've, been, I've always been a big fan of organic growth, because that gives people in the company growth opportunities. That means you're building things on your own platform, which has its long-term benefits. Um, I think the deals largely haven't worked out. The FTC is investigating Drizzly. I think they pay too much for uh, Postmates. And and really, in this environment, this antitrust environment, it's going to be hard to do any big deals anyway. So I do think the company has to kind of come back and look inside and figure out what to build and how to build it and have a long-term perspective on it. Um, Emil, more broadly, just on some of these, on the space overall, uh, there's the driver classification, now the delivery commission caps. Why does it seem like policy is kind of stacked up against the business models at this point? Yeah, it, it really does. And I think that um, while I think Dara and, and the Uber 2.0 management gave uh, brought a, a sense of diplomacy to the company and sort of stabilized it, the one thing they didn't do aggressively as they should is push back on some of these regulations. Um, any one city that implements a delivery cap, um, that gives permission for all cities to do it. Um, and it's frankly bad for consumers and it's bad for restaurants. If you're capped and someone from Brooklyn wants to order something from Manhattan uh, and you, you, can't chart, you can't pay the delivery guy enough to do that, well, then you're not going to deliver. Um, from that restaurant or to that consumer. So these con these regulations have real harm, and Uber has not done a good job conveying that to the public and therefore pressuring the legislatures not to do these things. No, Mill, I understand that you think that Uber has failed to do its part in these regulatory battles, but looking at these two major issues on the table right now, both in terms of Uber Eats and then also in terms of how drivers are classified, if Uber loses these battles, is there a strong path forward for this company? And what do you think the company needs to do right now to prepare itself should it not win these regulatory battles? Yeah, I think the, 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 the scarier battle is the worker classification battle because taking a driver who works 10 hours a week and making them an employee has a whole range of bad ramifications for the driver, for the consumer and for cities. Um, and if that happens, I think it'll be a, a really destructive force on this industry. So um, they won Proposition 2 by 60-40. I think what the judge wrote, and I read the whole opinion, um, was wrong and is likely to get overturned. But they have to make sure that it gets overturned there in, in California and do it in Massachusetts, which are the two states that were most susceptible to this classification of driver. On the food cap delivery fees, I think those may be able to be undone when, when the result on consumers is shown. When you see that restaurants complain that, hey, I'd, I'd be happy to pay a little bit more if I got way more customers and customers would be able to um, get delivery from anywhere they wanted, I think those may, uh, those may be okay 
uh, on the Uber business model. Emil, this battle, though, goes beyond California, Massachusetts, New York. I mean, even the Biden administration has its eye on gig worker classification. So my question is really broad. Do these business models even make sense if they have to classify their drivers as full employees? I think that they're going to be significantly hampered if they lose this battle for sure. But remember, we are entering into an era of remote work, of creator economies, of independent contractors, where people want more flexibility in their work. And that's why you surveyed the drivers. Um, 70, 80% don't want this. So I have a hard time imagining, even with the sort of regulatory headwinds that they're facing with the Biden administration and so on, that they'll actually make this a, a, a full-time worker business. But if they did, back to your question, Deirdre, I think it'll be yeah. a business model issue. Okay, well, Emil, thanks for being with us, Emil Michael. Thank you. Carl, I'm not sure if you caught that meme, Uber investors, uh, some ways in. We should say Lyft as well, which is still trading below its IPO price. Rahel, I'm sorry. Over to you. (laughs) Hi, Deirdre. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. The Pentagon says that there are specific credible threats against Kabul airport. Even as evacuations accelerate, a senior official says that about 5,100 American citizens have now been flown out of the country. He also corrected a key detail of yesterday's deadly attack. I can confirm uh, for you that we do not believe that there was a second explosion at or near uh, the Barron Hotel, uh, that it was one suicide uh, bomber. The Federal Reserve says that it will start tapering its asset purchases this year as hiring continues to improve, although Fed Chair Jay Powell also signaled that the U.S. Central Bank will remain patient as it tries to nurse the economy back to full employment. And consumer sentiment dropping in August to its lowest level in nearly 10 years, the University of Michigan index falling to 70.3, which is below what economists have been forecasting. You're now up to date, Carl. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Take a look at a a pair of earnings movers today. Workday is close to a six-month high today, uh, raising their guidance on both revenue and operating margins. Bookings remain pretty strong. Uh, VMware, though, cloud revenue does fall a bit short of expectations. uh, Shares down almost 9%. Plus, Elon Musk taking a shot at Jeff Bezos in a tweet this morning. This after Amazon urges the FCC to deny SpaceX's plan for second-generation Starlink. We are back after this Dow close to session highs. Tech has a diversity problem, a lack of representation, both among its employees and its leadership. Frank Holland is here with a new conference looking to change that. Frank? Hey, good morning, Julia. About 9% of U.S. tech workers are black, according to the latest numbers from Pew Research, and the community has grown over recent years. One of the driving forces has been the Afrotech Conference, the largest gathering of black tech professionals that started in 2016, the last one before the pandemic, with more than 10,000 people in tech or seeking tech jobs. Now the founders have started Afrotech Executive, aiming to increase black representation in the C-suite and in boards of tech giants like Google, Facebook, Microsoft and Apple that have only seen marginal growth in those top positions. All these companies and others, they made pledges following the death of George Floyd to address inequity, including in their own companies. I spoke with Reddit CEO Steve Huffman. He called Afrotech Executive, quote, 
an awesome opportunity to meet folks that we think hopefully will be interested in joining Reddit as leaders, potentially as executives, potentially as board members. The CEO of Ebony Magazine that's leading that legacy publication into a digital transformation says now is the time to hold big tech accountable. We have to put pressure, but not only during the day of, but after. So how are we following up? How are we building some type of coalition that's going to continue to put pressure on? How are we going to monitor? We continue to put pressure on the companies that want us as customers, but don't value us as employees, don't value us and offer us a seat at the table. And that is not acceptable. The conference begins in person on Saturday. Executives from Salesforce, Microsoft, Levi, Stripe and others are expected to attend in various capacities. Deidre, back over to you. Frank, thank you. We look forward to uh, updates on how that all went. Meanwhile, guys, watch HP this morning. Shares are down big in today's trade after a revenue miss and a struggle to meet demand thanks to the chip shortage. Those shares down more than 2.5%. A problem CEO Enrique Lore says may persist until early next year. More on those results at CNBC.com. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Marvell shares uh, sinking on those Q2 results. It was an earnings beat. Revenue did match expectations. But again, the costs came in higher on the quarter. And it's worth noting the stock did hit a series of all-time highs leading into the print. We're going to have a lot more on the quarter and the chip industry on Monday. Uh, do not miss an exclusive with Marvell's Matt Murphy right here on Tech Check. In the meantime, we're back in two minutes. Apple blinks. The company has been locked in a tense standoff with developers over the fees it charges within the App Store. The company now says it will loosen rules for developers in a major concession amid growing antitrust pressure from Washington. Our next guest thinks competition is under assault. Slow Ventures general partner and former VP at Facebook, Sam Lesson, joins us now. Sam, you just put, penned this really interesting essay, if you will, about competition and how you think competition is under assault, but competition is necessary. How much of this assault on competition is because of the power of these tech giants like your former employer, Facebook and Apple? Yeah, no, I don't think it's about the tech giants per se. I think it's actually more about the nature of technology where big things get really big and really powerful really quickly. You, know, you look at what happens for like an Apple, for instance, they're in a really tough spot, right? Because they legitimately have to deal with two demands from society. One is for privacy and safety, and the other is for open competition. That's an unwinnable thing for them. Um, what we can't allow them to do is use that as a cover to squash competition, right? Because they can't turn everything into a privacy issue so that no competition can be allowed. But, you know, I think that the fundamental problem isn't about companies, it's about technology. These companies, are, they're really big ones, they're just right in the middle of forcing how to deal with it. So, Sam, specifically on this Apple issue, do you think the concessions they've made will enable more competition? Do you think that what they were doing before was limiting it? And were these concessions meaningful? I think they're marginal, is what I would say. I think they're, they're the start of the story. I think the question Apple just has to wrestle with, as do all big platforms in one form or another, is, again, society demands two very different things of them. You can't have perfect privacy, perfect security, and perfect competition and openness. You have to choose. And society and the world tends to go in cycles of what they prioritize or care the most about. Um, you know, I think that's kind of a lot of what you see around crypto, for instance, is, is, is a fundamental technical rejection of kind of the path of some of this stuff. 
But, you know, look, I think Apple is going to have to make a lot more concessions over time if the, if the narrative around competition prevails, which I hope it does, because we need more of that to have a healthy society. Um, but there are going to be trades to be made here. Hey, Sam, I wonder fundamentally whether or not you think the environment right now for those who would look to disrupt and innovate and unseat giants through competition, if the environment today is much different than it was when ITT and Kodak and Polaroid and even, you might argue, IBM were unseated by young guys. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, you need shifts in technology to have an unseating, is what I would say, right? And so if you think about, for instance, Facebook, you know, my former, my former company is constantly under assault because the world of social media changes so quickly. You know, you look at TikTok, there's always new things up and coming. The fundamental, you know, platforms around phones, for instance, are in a pretty defensible place right now. We'll see what happens. There's going to have to be another turn of the wheel, whether it's VR, AR, et cetera, to kind of put those guys back in a mode where competition can rise. Uh, I think it's very hard to assault them at this point in the cycle. Hey, Sam, it's Deirdre. Now, of course, we hear from a lot of developers on the App Store payment ecosystem, but we don't really hear from our users. Make the argument as to why users should want the payment system to expand and how they would benefit. Well, I think it's quite simple, which is, you know, it's demoralizing to be a developer right now. So you think about what talent is going to building apps and better app experiences and pushing the envelope, you know, trying new things versus other things. The reality is, is like when the game is rigged, no one wants to play. Right. So I think the consumer argument is quite simple, which is that if you want better apps, if you want better experiences and new experiments, you want developers to be empowered. Now, the problem is, and let's be really clear about this, that those developers and experiments also have a cost. Right. Which is if you want perfect privacy, safety, security, then you probably want less innovation. Right. And so there's a, the question for for for, you know, for consumers is they want both and you fundamentally can't have both. Right. So the question is, how do you balance those and at, at a global scale? Sam, I wonder if you could lend your perspective as an investor in light of the regulatory scrutiny. Um, all of these pressures on these companies, if they could limit the opportunity for startups to be acquired, do you think, um, you know, right now, do you think that that is more of a negative force or do you think that just the size and scope uh, of these companies is, is, the, is the challenge to startups? And how does all of this impact where you want to place your bets? Well, you know, I, I wrote an essay recently about how I think venture capital is very fundamentally changing. You know, a lot of what we consider traditional venture capital in software on the West Coast right now, investing in, you know, SaaS and tech-driven, you know, B2B, B2C software, it's so well understood that there's so much capital out there. I don't even consider that venture capital anymore. So venture capital is always forced to look for new, crazier opportunities. What I'd say is there aren't new, crazy opportunities really in you know the traditional app ecosystems because they're too established because you know the game pattern is too is too well understood doesn't mean you can't build good businesses but you're not going to find great new things there that forces innovation on the edge i don't think that's bad you know i think that there's a lot to do there but i do think that if you want better apps you know you're going to have to and you want better people focusing their time on building better apps you need to make the game fair and open and interesting um, you can't kind of control the platforms too much or you end up with pretty, pretty suboptimal outcomes and consumer experiences. Well, Sam, so many different pressures at play here. We appreciate you sharing your perspective as an investor, also former Facebook employee. Thanks so much. Coming up after the break, Wall Street bets and Reddit are getting smarter. The graduation effect in retail trading is next. Stay with us.
Reddit traders learning a thing or two since entering the markets. Kate Rooney has more on the new investments they're making. Kate, spoiler, they're not the IRA or Roth IRA accounts that Robinhood's been touting. <laughs> no, they tend to be the much riskier investments. Some are calling it the graduation effect with new traders who started out with single stocks quickly moving on to more complicated and a lot riskier options trades with the help of social media and some of these low-cost apps. Over the past two years, we've seen a spike in options activity that has coincided with a rise in retail trading. Since the pandemic lockdowns started back in 2020, you can see options activity going up about sevenfold in that time. That's according to data compiled by Brokerage API Tradier. Retail activity, meanwhile, as a percentage of overall volumes has also increased in lockstep. It's now making up almost 30 percent of trades. And the big factor at play here, guys, is social media from what I'm hearing. Trader education is happening a lot quicker in places like Reddit, YouTube, and Discord. We're seeing a lot of chatter about it on Reddit, a lot of options, screenshots, and chatter about those types of trades in particular. There's also been a lot of those stay-at-home traders looking for content as well as a community. And barriers have essentially gone away. It's a lot more accessible with hundreds of apps now, including Robinhood, offering options. It is cheap, Across the board, commissions have essentially dropped to zero. And volatility has also spurred this on. Options contracts, of course, let you buy a stock at a predetermined price in the future, or you can sell it at a future price. And these types of trades tend to do better and just be more successful when there are big swings in the markets, which we've seen a lot of this year, especially in those meme stocks. And those rewards, of course, can be higher, but so can the risks in these cases. So being approved to buy puts or calls still usually requires one or two years experience and a mini- minimum dollar amount in liquid assets. Brokerage firms like Robinhood have come under some pressure and they've made it harder to access options trading after criticism that they were making it a little too easy and that the bar was too low. Back to you guys. Well, to that end, Kate, I'm wondering if there's a sense of whether these traders are actually ready to graduate. They are graduating, but are they fully aware of the risks and able to mitigate them or manage them? That's one of the big questions I was asking analysts who were sort of pointing this out, saying we've seen this rise. It does seem to be tied to retail trading. Uh, There is a sense that they're just being educated faster. There's more resources. They're on YouTube. So some of them are really taking the time to educate themselves. But it is a risk factor. Others say it's really up to the brokerage firm and the regulators to make sure that they're not taking on too much risk. Kate, appreciate that very much. Uh, Fascinating stuff, Kate Rooney. Uh, We continue to watch uh, markets here close to record highs. S&P 4506. Dow really only needs about another 175 points of its own. Uh, Have a great weekend. Let's get to Sully. And the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.